Bitcoiners, we are back with another episode of FedWatch. I am CK. As always, I am here with Ansel Lindner, and we are joined by one of my good friends, David Lawton, the head of research over at Bitwise Investments. We have an amazing show for you, completely action-packed, but let's just jump into a quick intro to our special guest, David. How's it going, my man? Hey, CK Ansel, it's great to see you and a pleasure to be here. I'm David, Director of Research at Bitwise Asset Management, which is one of the leading index-based investment firms in the Bitcoin and crypto ecosystem. I've been in I've, I've been in the industry for about three years professionally. And before that, I used to work in traditional finance. I used to be a sell-side equities analyst, meaning I used to be one of those analysts who write investment recommendation for stock reports for stocks. I worked a little bit on the deal side and IPOs. Used to cover Latin American stocks because I'm originally from Brazil. And before that, I used to be a software engineer for a very brief period of time, an engineer by training. So that's it. I made the shift from traditional finance to the Bitcoin world a few years back and haven't looked back. Awesome. Well, David, really excited to have you at, on the show again. Like you are an expert in the space and you really know a lot about both macro and Bitcoin and how they kind of fit together. And this is a very exciting week. You know, we've been seeing a lot of fireworks in the Forex space. Massive announcement earlier today by the Bank of England. We'll get into that. But I guess before we jump into all of that, a little bit of housekeeping, like you mentioned, Bitcoin Amsterdam is coming up in exactly 14 days. In less than two weeks, I'm going to be in Amsterdam. So I'm really excited for that. And ticket prices go up in eight days. So go get your ticket. It is time for an emergency vacation to the Netherlands. Travel restrictions have changed and have now become very, very open. And y'all, it's going to be absolutely fantastic event. I cannot wait going to be thousands of European Bitcoiners there and a huge highlight on the people building and moving this movement forward in Europe. So those used to Bitcoin Amps or Bitcoin Miami and other events in the US, uh, definitely a very unique and fair market vibe there. So of course, promo code BM live to get 10% off your tickets. Also, the new Bitcoin magazine featuring President Nayib Bukele's op-ed about why we should stop drinking the Kool-Aid of the big bankers that is coming out very, very soon. Get your subscription today. Again, code BMLive to save to uh, to save 10% off on that as well. Ansel, back to you. And uh, maybe we can touch on the, on our agenda. All right. Yeah, I'm super excited to have you on the show, David. Bitwise has a lot of stuff going on. Can you give bring us up to speed on what you guys have on your plate right now? Yes, of course. So while well, we a Bitwise, we've been in the market for about five years now. And today we have a variety of funds. I think our last AUM data point that we published externally was around 1.3 billion at the at the end of last year, probably down given the market price action that, that we've seen in 2022. But I think that's the last one we published. I mean, we, we are kind of actually very excited about this bear market. I'm particularly really excited about it. I've been through one bear market. I'm not a Bitcoin OG, but I have been through the 2018 bear market. I think it's one of the most exciting times to 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 build, straighten your convictions and 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 think about the market. So we've been doing a lot of educational work at Bitwise, including using material from you, Ansel, 
as, as you know well. So we continue to talk to clients, educate clients, try to help them understand how they can fit this world into their traditional finance frameworks. Twice is mostly focused on the RIA or financial advisor and institutional channels. We continue to do that. We have been launching some new funds and we'll probably continue to do the same. So for us, it's, we're seeing this, we're here for the long term. We're seeing this as an opportunity to keep building and keep moving forward. Awesome. And you guys are doing work on the ETF side of the house, right? So what, what is your take on the relationship with the SEC and the Bitcoin industry? Yes, this is correct. So Bitwise has filed for two coin spot Bitcoin ETF applications. We so far have been, of course, focused on the spot product, which is different from the futures based product that the SEC approved a while ago. Our second application was a few months back and it was, it was a pretty robust application. I think for those who are interested, we produced a ton of research on the underlying market underpinnings and why we do believe that in the Bitcoin market, there is a, 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 a sizable regulated market, which is one of the hurdles that the SEC wanted to, to approve a Bitcoin spot ETF. So we've, we've done a ton of research, statistical quantitative research to make that case. Our, our, our filing was of course denied together with the applications from other players in the industry. And I think right now to state a little bit, the obvious, there is this kind of jockeying situation between the SEC and the CFTC and who's going to regulate the market and who's going to regulate spot exchanges. And I, I think that at least until we see some of those jockeying sorted out, I, I don't see how, how, how we can make progress on the spot Bitcoin ETF process, at least for the short term. Continue to be, of course, excited on the long run. We think it's a matter of when and, and not if, but I just think that this is not something that we should expect to happen anytime soon. So kind of on the, the tip of the ETF last, I, I guess like the end of last bear market was kind of marked by a report that came from Bitwise in which Bitwise actually analyzed trading volume for Bitcoin. And you showed that the majority of trading volume was fake. And you actually showed that the majority of real trading volume was happening on a handful of mostly regulated exchanges. I remember Bitcoin Tina commented that this is the most bullish thing he's seen and the higher Bitcoin prices were nigh. And that really was, you know, that marked the bottom and, and Bitcoin's price did continue to climb from that point on. Can you walk through, put, I, I'm sure you're part of that report. Can you walk through that report, what we've seen in the last like three, four years since, and, you know, maybe what we're, we're you know, how we're viewing the current state of kind of Bitcoin trading. Yes, of course, I can definitely talk about it. I was not actually part of that report. I joined Bitwise almost a year after I think it was published, but I'm of course familiar with it and I've read it multiple times. I think the idea there was to try to show a little bit how organized the, the Bitcoin spot market was. And the two conclusions from, from that report was that one, yes, we, we, we reached the conclusion that 95-ish percent of the market activity is fake. And especially back then, of course, there was like a lot of 
activity and non-economic activity happening across exchanges for a number of reasons that we can get into, but probably don't, don't need to right now. But the other thing that was interesting from that report is that the 5% that actually is left it was an extremely well-organized and an extremely efficient market. So the, the thing is that once you, you separate the, the wheat from the shaft, once you start looking at the actual real activity market, you can see a relatively different picture in terms of how efficient and organized the Bitcoin market is. That was part of our first ETF application, which was denied. And I think thinking back, I, I think that the, back then there, there probably were reasonable reasons for the SEC to reject a spot Bitcoin ETF under the current applicable rules. Back then there wasn't, actually there were very few, if any, institutional custodians for Bitcoin. The CME futures contract was not yet launched. So I think that it was reasonable to have concerns around how organized the market was back then. Since 2017, and I definitely don't need to go through this in, 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 with this public, there has been a ton of advancements with regards to the institu institutionalization of the market. So we had a number of custody providers to the point that today there's basically a number of institutional regulated custodians, Bitcoin custodians available to the market. The CME futures market, became the, the most relevant, or if not for most of the time, one of the most relevant markets in, in Bitcoin. We had a number of financial institutions and I don't need to go through the whole institutionalization process of Bitcoin that happened over the last four years, but this is something that I'm sure has, has helped this market to be more efficient, more, 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 more organized, and more likely to achieve the status or achieve the possibility of having a spot ETF approved. As I said, we're, we're, we just think this is a matter of when, not a matter of if. So, so this was, there was a very long process over the last four years that brought in a number of important institutions that were very helpful to, I think, make the adoption for Bitcoin available to, to the general average investor but also to the more institutional investor that sometimes has restrictions that the, the, the retail investor or even the other types of investors might not have. Awesome. So yeah, Bitcoin is becoming a grown-up market. It's really maturing a lot. And yeah. what, are the, what are the other macro markets that it's trying to be considered alongside? That's where the rest of macro is kind of falling apart and is very stable. I've noticed that especially in the last six months, you know, Bitcoin has been very stable while all of these other things are collapsing around it. I think that's interesting. But getting into that, so we're, we're super excited to have you here and go through a normal show where we just bring you onto our round table and we go and discuss these topics. Up first is our Bitcoin charts. So Chris, we're up on the slide number one, please. So this is the Bitcoin daily chart, and I like to start here on Bitcoin uh, because it keeps us anchored in Bitcoin, even though we talk a mostly about Mac. Uh, and price, I believe, is one of the most, you know, the biggest thing. It's if price dropped by 90% and stayed there for 10 years, this space would shrink a lot. So price is very, very important. This is the daily chart. I just highlighted some support there at around 18,000. 
the diagonal trend line coming down. And it looks like we're showing a little bit of a strength over the last couple of days, but really the term I've used uh, is it's just been flaccid over the last uh, couple months, the Bitcoin price. Uh, but there is some signs of hope. So if you go to the next slide there, Chris, that is the weekly chart. And I want to highlight this green bar is a weekly bullish divergence. And that is the first weekly bullish divergence in the history of Bitcoin. So going back all the way to the beginning, there's never been a weekly bullish divergence. And we just had one. If we can close this week above 18,800, then we will have the first ever bullish divergence in Bitcoin on, on the weekly chart. So I think that's that's very bullish. Next chart, Chris, please. That is, this is, I, I just broke this down. I put this on my newsletter this week. You guys can get that at bitcoinandmarkets.com. And I just showed Bitcoin versus these other currencies. Bitcoin has been very stable against the dollar, but it is showing to be the hedge that it is, that it's going to be good for against the pound the euro and the JPY. And I think it's interesting from a technical analyst perspective, when you look at Bitcoin and how it's performing uh, against these other currencies, it could say break some important resistance against the euro. And that translates into pulling up the dollar price. So the entire global nature of the Bitcoin market, I think is extremely interesting. So those are my charts on the Bitcoin price. David CK, do you guys have any comments on what you think about the price these days? Let's go David first. Yes. Well, I think that I can definitely see how the coin story has become a little bit more flaccid, as, as you said, or the price section has become a little bit more flaccid as we're in this kind of risk on, risk off, binary type of environment. And most recently, definitely more on the risk on side. I can also see how a lot of these, perhaps a lot of the excitement that 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 was built throughout 2021 has 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 reversed a little bit due to the macro changes but having that said i i i have to say that i i have never been as bullish on the bitcoin investment case as i've ever been because i think that the bitcoin story is actually unfolding we are mo moving from this exceptionally, let's say, unprecedented easing, which was the case until a few months ago, to now unprecedented tightening, to the point that I think more and more people are realizing that the current system might not be completely foolproof or might not even be the best way to run an economy. So I see more and more people getting concerned with how much of a grip the Federal Reserve has on the economic wheel. So, so I do believe that perhaps part of this, let's say, quote unquote, relative strength, or at least trying to find some bottom on, on the Bitcoin side has to do with the fact that I think we've seen a number of macro developments over the last few weeks or, or, or maybe even a uh, couple of months that are kind of strengthening that V and, and we can definitely talk more about that. But that's 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 what we have been seeing. And 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 I'm it's hard to know what's gonna happen in the short term. Of course, the macro cycle is definitely not over. There's definitely a very interesting lag of the macro cycle to unfold over the last few months, over the next few months. So it's hard to know exactly where the market goes from here. 
But when I think on a slightly longer time frame, I can't help but to be, but being extremely bullish about Bitcoin. What do you think, CK? Yeah, I mean, my take for a long time is Bitcoin is a monetary system that actually works. And we're seeing the current monetary system that the world runs on breaking down in front of our eyes. And all Bitcoin has to do is to continue working. And what you start to see is first, Bitcoin is crashing against the dollar, but ripping against the Bolivar or the Argentinian peso simultaneously. And now we're starting to see that dynamic shift. Okay, maybe Bitcoin is crashing against the dollar, but it's starting to go up against the euro and the British pound, which are, you know, are themselves struggling against the dollar. And at the margins is where Bitcoin wins. So, you know, as these marginal currencies start to break down, and frankly, the pound and the euro are not marginal currencies, like you see Bitcoin working more and more. So it's obviously really scary times right now. A lot of volatility in the world, a lot of uncertainty in the world, a lot of assumptions breaking, but it is nice to see, you know, Bitcoin being recognized kind of across the financial ecosystem as something that is showing stability in these moments, as well as Bitcoin evolving from, you know, maybe going up against the the, the peso and, uh, and the boulevard and these very fringe weak currencies to now we're seeing that same dynamic against what has historically been much stronger currencies. Yeah, David, I would be uh, interested to hear your take on... David. <laughs> that, that's awesome. <laughs> who who would have guessed we would have a, a New York Times saying that all currencies around the world are tumbling and, and Bitcoin is showing up as, as, a, as a bright spotlight. A few years ago, that would be unthinkable in, in, in my view. Sorry, Ansel, I think I, I interrupted yeah, you. Interrupt me, Ansel, you're good. Oh, no, okay. I, I, I'm in the, the hurricane or on the outskirts of the hurricane. I didn't know if my internet was breaking up. But yeah, David, I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts are on Bitcoin versus these other currencies. Like as an investment case, you know, say you're an investor in South America. Is there a stronger case for Bitcoin there? Is there a stronger case for Bitcoin in Europe or Asia or America? And what? how do you, how do you read? Oh man, this is this is such a great question. And I had, of course, I'm I'm originally from Brazil, and and I had questions around Bitcoin many times with with many types of investors in the years past. And it's kind of a mixed bag, you know why? Because if you talk to the average Brazilian, especially if you're over thirty three ish, you've probably experienced hyperinflation or at least very severe monetary disruptions in, in one, one way or another in your life. So the, the memory that governments can mess up with, with the currency and this, that this is not a fun thing to go through is, is very alive in, in, in most Brazilians' mindset. So they, they get that. They, they totally understand all the potential issues with overinflation, bad monetary management, and all those things. Usually, however, at least to the type of, uh, especially within the most like institutional, let's say professional type of investor folks, the issue with these guys is that in the specific case of Brazil, and I think this is actually the case for quite a few emerging countries, capital controls are not that strong. So although a lot of Brazilians understand the issues with their own domestic currency, 
their next step is go to the dollar or to perhaps the Swiss franc or 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 maybe the pound in 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 earlier and shinier times. But for them, the protection against their currency is the dollar. And, and they can do that relatively easily. So you kind of come back to the same discussions that we have here in the US. So say, no, you're actually, when you have, when, when you want to build a case for Bitcoin, you're, you're probably building a case against broader fiat monetary mismanagement more, more broadly. And so we kind of get into that same discussion. That's, that was my experience, especially in the earlier days. That has probably changed. Once we saw, I think a few episodes or for example, what happened in Turkey, right? So there were a bunch of bank lockdowns and the clients thinking that they were protected and that their savings were, were protected. Sometimes perhaps, I don't know if it was the case, even in foreign currency, but sometimes you cannot access that, right? So, so Bitcoin, this is something that Bitcoin provides more than just having a, a, a US dollar balance or a US dollar fund in your Brazilian bank. I don't think this has been the case for every single emerging market. So of course they're they're all different, but I think that in the case of, of Brazil, and, and I think this is kind of the case for quite a few of the larger emerging markets, because capital controls are not that big, you can always shift to the dollar. So so the argument kind of becomes on the dollar to the point that I, sometimes it was easier for me to have conversations about Bitcoin here in the U.S. because if you're in the U.S. and if you want to hedge against your currency, there there is no no second bets. So then you, you're going to start thinking about gold or, or Bitcoin and whatnot. So in the earlier days, it was actually harder for me. And and I know that this has not been his experience, but 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 it has it has been the case for me. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Yeah, that's extremely, extremely interesting. So I, I like to break apart Bitcoin into two kind of buckets that, you know, it is an inflation hedge. That has been the story for Bitcoin. It is an inflation hedge, but it also like gold, it's, it's a deflation. It's a hedge against credit crisis 
And can you talk about that? Do you see Bitcoin similarly? And maybe that's how the, I don't know, maybe that plays into how Brazilians or these emerging markets might view Bitcoin versus how an American might view Bitcoin. Oh man, I, I love this question. I actually wrote a small research brief. It's it's available at our uh, our website. It's the insights page at bitwiseinvestments.com for those who want to look at it. I think this this is a hill I'm willing to die on. I have a very strong view that Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, but as you said, and perhaps saying the same thing, you you're saying just in different words. Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation in a different way that most people think it is. There's, there's also a second point, which is that measuring how something good, how good something is as an inflation hedge is a lot harder than, than it might sound. And, and we can definitely talk more about that. But, but to the first point, I agree that Bitcoin is a hedge against monetary mismanagement, right? So if we're in the traditional situation in that prices go up and then either the market or supply chains adapt and then they go down again or, or they stop going up or the Fed takes action and, and, and everything goes back to normal, Bitcoin would be a lot less. The thing, however, is that I, I always like to say that I, I, I think, and I borrowed this from someone, I, I'm not sure, I think it was Jim Rick, a gold investor. He, he, he used to say that the Federal Reserve thinks that they're tinkering with the economy. Okay, let's run a little hotter. Let's run a little colder. As if they were playing with a thermostat in, in a room, as an, like an air conditioner but they're actually playing with a nuclear reactor. So it, it, it can get a lot more complex and, and a lot more unintended consequences than we might think. And I think we're seeing quite a bit of that playing out in, in real time right now. So that's why it is so exciting. But, but, but to put it like perhaps in a shorter way, there are different quote unquote types of inflations and there is different instruments that you should use in order to protect Right. One thing is if you're if you're worried about general generalized inflation, potentially currency pressures, that's where Bitcoin and, and, and gold shines the brightest. If you're just expecting inflation to go up and then reach at a new plateau, there's probably better things for you to buy. There's there's oil, there's companies with, with pricing power. And I think that the market is more and more realizing that the issue is not that inflation came and that the Federal Reserve will take action and things will go back to normal. I think that's the realization that is starting to surface now. And, and that's where I think things like Bitcoin shine the, the brightest. So yes, I think it is, Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, but as you said, in a slightly different way. I like to put it as a hedge against monetary mismanagement, but I but I agree a lot with you. There's another point we can discuss, which is how to measure this. It's it's a lot more complex than than it might seem. David, I mean, my framing is that you say Bitcoin's a hedge against monetary mismanagement. I would say Bitcoin is money that works, and all the other money is mismanaged. So That's true. it's guaranteed to be mismanaged. <laughs> It's, it's a process. Well, yes, we'll get there. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I really like your framing is that people are starting to realize that this, this is not just an inflation thing. Like this is a system wide process that is is breaking down. The incentives don't work. The high, I call them the high priests of the central banks. They don't know what they're doing. They are, you know, playing with like a nuclear switch rather than a thermostat you know they don't have these fine-tuned dials on the economy but rather they're like 
you know, throwing darts at a dartboard and maybe there's a bunch of humans lined up right next to that dartboard and there's going to be some fatalities too. Like, you know, we're, we're not, we're not talking about like, Hey, there's like precision central bank activity. Like none of it is that it's actually the blind leading the blind and, and it's systems that, you know, are, are crumbling in front of our eyes. What, what's your take of that? I, I agree 100% with that. I, I do believe that this is a big uh, paradigm shift for many people, or for most people. I mean, I'm part of the Bitcoin community. I've been into Austrian economics. I've been a sound money uh, advocate for, for, for a little while, for, for actually before learning about Bitcoin. So for someone like me, this is, I think this is very crystal clear the issue is that I think that for most people, this is a realization process that still needs to, to happen. And, and which is from an upside perspective on the Bitcoin side, it's, it's great, right? If everyone had the same understanding that we have in this room around Bitcoin, probably the price would be different. Probably the upside would be different in case we're proving correct. So I think that I, I agree 100% with. And the, the one thing that I always like to say is that the the radical experiment is modern central banking policies it's it's not bitcoin bitcoin is how the world operated for a very large part of our monetary history for almost all of our monetary history we are living in the exception so that so i i, I couldn't agree more with you but there's definitely a, a a realization process that that needs to happen that might take a while might might take even a, a relatively long time but yeah, I think we're definitely moving towards it. So let's talk a little bit more about that monetary mismanagement. What we've seen over the last week in the UK is pretty jaw dropping. So if Chris, if you could bring up the next slide here, that would be slide number four. This is just a, a quick look at the pound this year dropped from 135 this year, all the way down to 105 and really has been accelerating in the last week. Next slide. This is the 10-year gilt or UK government bond. And man alive, has it just exploded. When I see this chart, I think this is just pain. You know, lots and lots of pain out there. It started this year at about 1% and it hit 4.5% before this recent intervention, which we'll talk about here in a second. The next chart I have is the 30-year government bond. And they, so after, I mean, you can see it rose from about 1.25% at the beginning of the year, all the way up to 5%. It looked like it was, there was, the wheels were falling off of the financial system over there in Great Britain. And so then they came out and announced some intervention and you can see that big red candle today. I, I updated this at about noon Eastern time. It might have changed since then, but really it's, it's fallen almost an entire percent in just one day, hundred basis points, which is a pretty incredible move. If you go to the next slide, Chris, this is the announcement that came out of the bank of England. And I'll just read through this as the governor said in his statement. Okay. Now I can't see it. It's too small. <laughs> Hold on a second. All right. There we 
we go. As the government's governor said in his statement on Monday, the bank is monitoring developments in financial markets very closely in light of the significant repricing of UK and global financial assets. This repricing has become more significant in the past day, and it is particularly affecting long dated UK government debt where or sorry, were dysfunction in this market to continue or worsen, there would be a material risk to UK financial stability. This would lead to an unwarranted tightening of financial conditions and a reduction of the flow of credit in the real economy. I think it's already there. In line with this financial stability objective, the Bank of England stands ready to restore financial functioning and reduce any risks from contagion to credit conditions for UK households and businesses. Now, this is the, the important part here. To achieve this, the bank will carry out temporary purchases of long-dated UK government bonds from 28 September, that's today. The purpose of these purchases will be to restore orderly market conditions. The purchases will be carried out on whatever scale is necessary to affect this outcome. The operation will be fully indemnified by His Majesty's Treasury. So, um, any scale necessary that is very reminiscent of mario draghi back in what was it 2012 or so 2013 when he's like you know oh what what was his quote that he'll do whatever it takes and then powell just came out and said it will be enough trust me it will be enough so central banks they're kind of copying each other here and the uk might be the first one to snap and pivot so what's your take on the last i would say 48 hours in UK government bond sector? Well, nothing but absolutely massive. Someone wrote here in the chat, explain it to me like I'm a Doge holder. And I, I, I think there's there's probably two things to, to keep in mind here. Number one, the combination of higher yields and currency weakness is very rare in developed countries. This reminds me a lot of emerging market type of crises that we used to see usually these things when when you raise yields currency when yields go up currency strengthen so it's th those two things happening at at the same time definitely signal a, a very strong lack of confidence within bold bondholders in in general and and the second thing is of course because this is a very atypical situation in the market the bank of england has stepped in announcing a quote-unquote temporary purchase of long-term bonds and basically the intention to do that is to quote-unquote restore order in the market I think here it's also important to keep in mind that I'm not an expert in UK finances or, or, or monetary policy at all, but the Bank of England was doing quantitative tightening until, well, until yesterday, basically. And so that's a pretty big reversal versus what it, it was doing. It, it, it is a very big change in the policies that they were pursuing. I would love to hear your takes on sell CK, of course, too. But I think that this is another one of those instances that show that monetary policy is not unconstrained, that there are very real world limits to what you can do. It's relatively hard to stay within those limits in the political system that we have today governing these monetary authorities. So that's kind of where I think coin dovetails very nicely as this mutable monetary policy 
type of monetary instrument. So I think this is just another instance of that. No, not just another instance. It's, it's, it's a, an amazing instance of seeing that play out in real time, especially in a country that is important as, as the UK. I, I, I think it's absolutely breathtaking. What, what do you guys think? I have, to, I have to kick it over to Ansel. I'm sure he has a more intelligent take. Well, my take is that the market forced this on the central bank. And that's one thing I've been saying about the pivot for pretty much the whole year is that when it comes time to pivot, the Fed or the ECB or the BO, you know, the Bank of England, they aren't going to have a choice. The, the market is going to force them to pivot. And that's what we're seeing here. Apparently, there was a bunch of pension funds that were getting margin called. And so they had to come in and save that. And it I don't, might not only be UK pension funds. I mean, it might be some European pension funds, you know, or some other uh, American pension fund. I don't know. Like there there was some some big players that were about to explode and it forced the banks to pivot, it forced the bank to pivot. And so the same thing is going to happen with the ECB. The same thing is going to happen with the Fed. The Fed tells us that they're data dependent. They tell us that they follow the market. And all of these rate hikes that we've seen over the last six months, I mean, the market has given them this space, you know, so the rates have moved up and the Fed has moved up rates. Then the the market has moved up and the Fed has moved up rates. So if that changes, which is possible, like if the 10, well, if uh, Chris, if you could bring up slide number nine, please. This is all of the, sorry, next one. Perfect. So this is all of the, the tenors here up to the 10 year. So the four week, the three month, the six month, the two year, five year, 10 year. And you can see that the US bonds also rallied today. So the yields were falling on this news. And I, I think it's a little similar to what happened in June. I put some arrows there on the chart and you can see the four week bill traded sideways way below the Fed funds target range during that time. And the 10 year and the five year, they peaked and they started rolling over. And I think that could replay itself today. And if that's the, the case, if the 10 year say is inside the Fed funds target range, they're going to be able to hike again. I think so. Something will probably break before that. And last thing I'll say before I hand it over to CK is that we've been talking about the end of Q3 for a long time on the show and what's coming up at the end of this week. It's the end of the third quarter. That is traditionally when all of these financial crises happen. And I'm not, not surprised that things are starting to fall off. You know, the wheels are starting to fall off right here at the end of the quarter. So anyway, all right, CK back to you. No, I think great, great context, Ansel. And yeah, I mean, on this show, we've been talking about, you have been talking about Q4, specifically the fall as being time for a lot of fireworks. You've also been talking about how the market is driving all this activity while Fed and other central bankers are effectively kind of following. And you have been calling for uh, a central bank pivot. I think it's very interesting to see uh, the Bank of England being the first to pivot. You know, personally, uh, I, I, I thought it was going to be the ECB. Uh, I thought Europe was under the most stress, but England and the UK are not insulated from the stress of, of Europe despite Brexit, right? And I'm very interested to see 
what the narratives are going to be like playing out. And I'm curious, either from Ansel or David, does this, I mean, it sounds like Ansel thinks this, this is the case, but does this spell, you know, kind of pivot across the board on central banks as as market conditions change across the board? I'm kind of curious, uh, you know, what you guys think about that. I'll just jump in here first real quick. I think that this does mean this will have a domino effect onto other markets. So pausing or pivoting across the board. Yeah, no, this is this is awesome. I agree with Ansel. I think that the interesting thing that we're seeing here is that the UK crisis has like contours of a financial crisis, right? Until recently, most of the market was worried about economic slowdown, which is something that has a much slower transmission mechanism compared to a financial market, which has prices reflected on the screen instantly. So these things, they, they transmit a lot faster. I don't think that central banks will pivot unless they really have to. It's extremely painful for them to do that especially given the rhetoric that they have been advancing for, for quite a few months now. But what was surprising is how relatively little it takes, how relatively small of a slack the system has to generate these pretty impressive dislocations that, that, that might require central bank acting pretty quickly. So yeah, I, I'm also team pivoting. I, I, I agree a lot with that view. I think this was a very, very interesting development. It's, it could be one of those things that later in the future, we're going to think of it, of the UK pivoting event as the first of a series and not as a, an isolated event. I have a quick question before we uh, we jump over to China, but what is, so the Bank of England has pivoted. Let's just say you're a trader. How do you, you know, is, is this the moment that you, you go back into risk assets or, you know, there's a trend of now, you know, people are, are kind of shying away from risk, piling into USD or other cash instruments, you know, What's the right way to kind of think about this this potential macro shift? It's 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 a gr great question. I wonder what Ansel thinks. I think that it's still kind of potentially, let's call this a kind of a turning point. But I think that there's still a lot that needs to to develop for 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 this. I think opinion to to spread um, across the markets. I still think that. Uh, it is, I mean, it, some people will see it as an exaggeration to call this a pivot in the sense that rates are still up and going up. They're doing this only in specific points uh, uh, across the curve. They're only acting in the longer dated uh, instruments. So the way I'm thinking about it is more as a turning point. It could take a while for 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 the pivoting narrative to to spread more broadly because these Transmission mechanisms are extremely hard to, to, to predict. The one thing I was going to say is that it has introduced this financial aspect to it that can make the transmission mechanism a lot shorter than it otherwise would be, than just the regular economic slowdown that takes place over course of many months or many quarters. I think the intertightness of, of the financial conditions, they, they can make these things happen a lot faster. And I think that's kind of uh, 
a signpost for for that. What do you think, Hansel? Yeah, I think it depend definitely depends on who you are, your conviction level, and in your thinking on and your framework on the market here, your risk tolerance. I actually believe that if there's probably a higher risk reward to you know betting that bonds will go higher here and stocks will go higher uh, because we could have a short squeeze in both directions, you know, so, or with both asset classes, both bonds and stocks have sold off so badly this year. I think, you know, if you just put your stop loss at, at new lows for all these things and just bet on a bounce here, I think your risk reward is higher, but it depends on who you are. If you're a trader or if you're an institutional player, etc. but yeah, that, that's what I would say. But I'm, I'm not one of these people. So I, I'm kind of more of an expert on the macro macro economics and the geopolitics of it and not so much on the trading aspect of it. So that's what I would say, Christian. All right. Should we pivot to talk about China before we wrap the show? Yes. So we, we like to talk about China here on the show. And we've been, you know, kind of early on a lot of this financial distress that they've been seeing over there in the real estate market and their banking system and all of that stuff. So we just have an update on that. And I'd love to hear David's thoughts on what he thinks is going on in China. So this is from Michael Pettis. If you guys don't follow him, I don't know what to tell you. You need to get over onto Twitter and follow Michael X Pettis. But he has a very short tweet thread here that I'm just going to read through. So this is an article from the Wall Street Journal, and I will link to that in, in the show notes of, you know, when I when we put out the audio version of this podcast. But here it goes, is uh, nearly 60% of China's overseas loans are now held by countries considered to be in financial distress compared to with just 5% in 2010. I've long argued that what others described as debt trap diplomacy diplomacy was in fact mostly inexperience. China made the same set of mistakes that every other country has when it was first when it has first gone out. During the days of rising trade surpluses and surging commodity prices, it was too easily impressed with its own lending skills and far too optimistic about repayment prospects. That was never going to last, however, and soon enough, sorry, that was never going to last, however, and soon enough we would see a sharp reduction in Chinese lending to developing countries. That started happening in 2015 and 16, and I expect Chinese loans to developing countries only to decline further over the next few years. And why I highlighted that last sentence is because, you know, all of these emerging markets are in recession. They need these loans. They need that irresponsible money lending from the Chinese, the Chinese banks, and now they're not going to get it. So that is, I think, on top of what we're seeing with a deterioration in all these financial markets. Now you have fewer lenders because the Chinese are not going to lend out to save you. So David, over to you. What are your thoughts, I guess, quickly on China and maybe some of this BRI stuff that we're seeing collapse? Yeah, no, this is a great point. I'm by no means a, an expert in, in China or anything like that, but I have to say that I'm finishing to read a book that Ansel, maybe you read it. If not, I think you'd like it. It's by Peter Zahan. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing the author's name correctly. It's called The uh, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. And they paint a very interesting picture of this changing order. But they, they go beyond the, the financial or monetary aspect. The author covers 
transportation, manufacturing, energy. Like for me, it was very eye-opening too. I'm, I'm definitely familiar with the financial aspect of these things. So it was really interesting to see. And, and the author paints a very bearish picture about China when you think about it from a strategic, geopolitical, even economic aspect in the longer run. I think that that makes sense. And I think that we saw a number of that were done during the great times that probably will need to be unwinded. And that's relatively painful to happen. So for me, this is kind of uh, another instance of, of that longer process happening, but no expert on, on, on China by any means, but it just kind of called my attention on it. I mean, I think that um, that's- CK, I have one more. Go for it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I have one more comment on this about the Belt and Road. And the guys that are on my Telegram that listen to my live streams over there, they they record. But here it goes. So the Belt and Road stuff, just because you throw money at a problem doesn't mean that it's going to pay, you know, be able to get pay back your investment. And so this BRI stuff, I think, was just funding was just throwing good money after bad, building all this infrastructure in these countries that are not viable. They won't be productive and pay them pay for themselves in the long run. And we're starting to see that with uh, with what's happening now. That's awesome. All right, CK. I mean, I would say, you know, if you zoom out, fiat money, credit based money, whatever it is incentivizes poor you know asset allocation poor capital allocation and it's almost like a competition to generate more and more credit and debt in order to have some sort of competitive advantage and we're just seeing that completely deflate and who was the biggest beneficiary of that activity i would say in the last 20 some years it was china who is one of the biggest proponents of that activity it's probably china and now we're seeing as that system activity falls apart, who is likely going to have the most pain? It's China. And this goes directly against the mainstream narrative that China is the new rising power and that the Chinese centralized top-down decision-making way is the way in which other countries should start moving. We saw a lot of praise during the COVID pandemic and how China was handling it. We saw a lot of shock and awe over what China does leading up to this point. And it's very, very interesting to see that how people viewed the global economic system is kind of unraveling, especially with China having these issues and the Belt and Road Initiative having these issues. Very well said. So that was um, really do question. we have anything else yeah, to cover you know, or should we, should we wrap it? I mean, yeah. I mean, David, you want to close this out on, on what you think about China and maybe macro in general, and then we can wrap this one up. Yeah, no, very quickly. I, I agree with everything that you two have said. I, I, I have also a more contrarian view with regards to, to China. China prospects in the long run. So I don't want to spend too much time. I totally agree with that. The one thing I want to highlight is that uh, we're probably going to see some very, very big changes uh, in macro uh, and on the monetary side that will have very big repercussions for all sorts of investments. The, the next 10 to 15 years are probably going to look very different from the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So that requires a lot of thinking, studying a lot of history uh, in order to try to, to access and, and have a better map to, to navigate what's ahead of us. 
but definitely I think we're going to be going through some pretty interesting times here. All right, y'all. That is all we have for the show. I wanted to thank you, David, so much for coming on. It's, you know, I miss getting to hang out with you in the Bay Area. This man can grill an amazing picanha. I can, I can attest personally. But David, where can people learn more about you, follow some of the amazing work that you're doing in the space? This is awesome, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to join whenever you'd like. You can find more about me on Twitter. I'm D-Lawant, D-L-A-W-A-N-T. Or you can go to bitwiseinvestments.com. We produce a ton of market and, and research commentary there. And if you're in the Bay Area and if you want to hit me for barbecue, especially a Brazilian barbecue, I'm always up for it. My, my DMs are open. Wow. Here, here That's, I was thinking it's an open special, invitation. But, um, <laughs> you got an open invitation for the grill. Amazing. Well, hey, y'all take him up on it. Go to the Bay Area Bitcoin meetup. I know David attends those on occasion. Very cool. Y'all can follow me at CK underscore snarks. Ansel, where can people find more about you? At Ansel Linder on Twitter, bitcoinandmarkets.com for my free newsletter. David, it was great to meet you. Thanks for coming on. Hope to do it again. Great to meet you too, Ansel. Great to be here. Thanks, guys. All right, y'all. And to close out this week or tonight's today's episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live, I want to remind everyone, Bitcoin Amsterdam, it's happening in exactly 14 days. It's going to be an absolute blast. I cannot wait for it. I cannot wait to be in Amsterdam. I cannot wait to show the world that Bitcoiners in Europe are here. This is a real movement. And Europe as a place that desperately needs something new, something fresh, a better system. Bitcoin is here for it. So I'm very excited for everything that's going to be happening at Bitcoin Amsterdam. Make sure to use promo code BMLIVE. Plan that vacation. It is not too late. And y'all, that is it for me. Thank you so much for watching and see you tomorrow. Peace. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com, where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-work shop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. 
Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLive to get 10% off of your order today. 